live in dynamic interesting times. We do sometimes come across people who may have started with conventional education and professional choices but then chosen to do something that could only be explained as a deeper calling. Something one felt that one was born to do, needed to do, to fulfill one's purpose in life. That is why I wanted to introduce my guest for this episode of A Call to Grow, Bhavna Isser, a graduate from one of India's premier management institutes, worked in the corporate sector with large companies in positions that offered power and money. And then Bhavna made some odd choices, the seeds of which perhaps lay in her childhood and growing up years. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to whoever is listening. You know, I was just saying a little while ago to this very dear friend of mine who talks about control. She was saying basically how she's very dependent averse. And I was telling her that how I am very, very comfortable giving up control, particularly to competent women around me. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Indian culture, and especially the regional culture, Bengali women are known to be very, uh, you know, one of the dominating forces in every family. And this is a little different from many other other kind of sub-Indian cultures. So I think we grew up with this whole figure of the Durga, which is a deity who has 10 hands, who's super powerful, who was a slayer of demons, which no other gods could slay. So we brought up to actually believe and worship that women are far more powerful than men. They know much more and it's best to give up control to them. So I, this is one person and this friend of mine I was referring to is Bhavna Isar. When I'm around her, I'm most happy to give up all control. And if I could, I would even give up the control of actually facilitating this conversation for my podcast. But uh, <laughs> Bhavna Isar. So who is Bhavna Isar? She's an HR professional. She's a management graduate who's worked in the corporate sector for many, many years for many large companies. She subsequently took a break. She got into uh, many things, amongst which she's a founder of two organizations. One is a consulting firm, which is called Samabhavana. In consulting avatar, she works with organization, women's management and leadership, etc., and works with many, many leading companies in India. On the other hand, she is also an entrepreneur, a social entrepreneur. She started an organization called Caregiver Sathi, where she has been raising issues of the neglected labor of caregiving in every family, every organization, every society, and how that neglected labor, the kind of toxicity, therefore, it generates in our society. And she's been crusading for the dignity of caregiving. Apart from that, she's a process worker. She's a Sumedhyan. That's where she and I are colleagues in Sumedhas. And yeah, she's a mom. She's a motorcyclist before she snaps at me. Let me just clarify that. She's a super motorcyclist. She's done many adventures. In fact, she took a break from a corporate career to go on a great adventure bike ride. So many things about Bhavna Isar, a woman of great competence and therefore a very deserving candidate for all kinds of controls. <laughs> But on that note, let me bring in Bhavna. Bhavna, who are you? So this question has haunted me and made it really hard for me to ever answer it correctly. And um, I have often wondered, you know, what do I tell about myself? And I remember very vividly this particular program that I was a part of. 
And I used to be very wary of, okay, before the program, I have to introduce myself. So what will I say about me? Now, what makes sense for this particular audience? Because obviously I can't go on and on. And um, somebody in my past had pointed out, but why didn't you share this about yourself? So for example, you're leading a leadership program uh, for an organization. Why wouldn't you tell them that you have been an HR professional who has seen so many reorganizations? It's like, okay, that's a relevant point for this particular audience. But is that enough description of me? And I remember this other program where I was, again, figuring out my language and my definition. And I remember saying, I'm a restless soul. I am someone who has a passion and desire for life. And um, I am somebody who has diverse interests. I'd rather not be put in a box or a label. I like the unpredictability. So I like the surprise that comes from, oh, you know, she's a motorcyclist, but you know what? She's a motorcyclist who can also crochet. Or she has been an HR professional, but you know, she doesn't fall under the stereotype of what is expected of an HR person. So I think if I can transcend a label, I'd like to be the person who can transcend a label or a definition. Hmm. I think that that's something I hear a lot. I mean, there is an aversion to labels and boxes, but what's the real fight with labels? Uh, what's the fight? Because all social identities at one level, you know, has a label. So for example, I am a Bengali. Now, does that label necessarily restrict me? Is it therefore putting me in a box? Uh, surely, I mean, stereotypes I find very restrictive, but uh, an identity of, uh, uh, you know, beat by my profession or my social identity. I have never for myself found it restrictive. So I can be a Bengali. I can be an Indian, my political identity. I can be a, a South Asian or I can be a migrant Bengali because my forefathers came from East Bengal and that has a certain history. So when do labels actually become restrictive in your experience? Always, right? So, for example, I, I think for me, um, on many an occasion, I have uh, referenced myself as being a fraud Punjabi. Why am I a fraud Punjabi? Because although I belong to West Punjab from my father's side and relocated at the time of partition, uh, I have personally never lived in Punjab. And because I grew up being located in multiple cities, my father was in the Air Force, uh, I do not have a typical Punjabi accent. There are many things about Punjabis that don't go very well with me. I don't necessarily relish the typical Radma Chawal, for example. And therefore, if I were to say I'm a Punjabi, it wouldn't be me. Sure. And I see your point about the lack of anchor when there is no label. And I think that's so important. It is so important to, for us to have a sense of definition, some kind of an anchor that helps you and I come to a common ground. And the absence of that can is actually causing a large number of mental health issues today. Okay. One of the ways of introducing, and, and this who am I question I try for myself, is uh, not to rely on social identity. By social identity, I mean my profession, my caste, my religion, my 
you know, the geographical area that I come from, my language, and so on and so forth. And I often ask myself that what's been some of the most defining experiences in life that have actually shaped me into the person that I am today? If I were to ask you the same question, what have been some of the most defining experiences, events in your life, and maybe two or three of them, that you think has actually shaped the bhavna, the person today, with your proclivities, your desires, your ambition, your mission and sense of mission and purpose in life? How would you navigate through that question? The who am I question, I would answer in, in many, many ways. And we can go back to that at some point. Just leaving that footnote here. The incidents that may have deeply defined who I am, this is an event in my memory. This is with respect to my relationship with my younger brother. I have a very distinct memory of us being in Jorhat Assam, and I was in grade three. My brother was in grade one, and uh, you know he performed badly in his math test and forged my dad's signature. The teacher must have wanted to reprimand him and uh, he, he insisted. So you can imagine a six-year-old or a whatever, insisting that that handwriting is the father's. <laughs> Obviously, it was not so. And maybe as a way to make a point, the teacher asked him to go fetch me. And I was this eight-year-old. <laughs> I want you to know that I was this straight and narrow, good girl, <laughs> compliant person for a very long part of my life. And I was horrified at being called by the teacher. And I remember vividly walking down that alley and my brother telling me, you just say that it is Papa's signature. <laughs> How can I lie? I can't lie. What are you saying? I will not do it. And but, you know, the tension of wanting to protect my younger brother and feeling that he brought shame or reprimand for me as well in that moment definitely defines our relationship. We have laughed about it often and reference to this incident has led to being told about, oh, you, you know, you were so young and you looked after your brother like this and that and the other. And I think that's a big part of who I am and how I have led my life. You've been the elder child, the responsible, the straight, the narrow, the obedient one, the protective of the younger one. And that's what you're talking about. Is that correct? Definitely all of those. So being the responsible elder one and that has definitely defined who I am. And it has taken a lot of work for me to undo parts of that as well. Mm. Later as my awareness grew. Mm. But uh, it definitely defines me and my approach. A second and a very defining incident for me was, you know, my father had a terminal illness and he was diagnosed uh, of multiple system atrophy when I was about 17, 18 although I didn't really know about it, but one kind of sensed something is going on in the house and uh, this very healthy and tall and sturdy pilot of a man was suddenly deteriorating in front of us. 
The night that ended up being his last night was very poignant for me. And I think very defining again. Because he had been so unwell, he was losing a lot of facility and capability of his voluntary movement. So he was dependent for many things. And it must have been really hard for a person uh, like him to be dependent and to be this agile mind trapped in a body that was aging very, very fast and not keeping with his, uh, not helping him. So that particular night, he had a lot of cough and he told me that he doesn't have the desire to live. I do believe that the fact that he wanted to live helped him live longer. So he was a very disciplined person. He used to do yoga, eat his food in a particular way, etc. And that must have definitely helped him live longer and better. But that night he said that he didn't have any more desire to live. Um, I was visiting, I used to stay in a different city and I was very confused with that response. So I, I told him that, no, you know, my younger brother is still to finish his education. There's still so much to see in life, etc. And he just said, I know you will take care. I must have made a lot of meaning of that. Mm. So I already had this proclivity to be the responsible one. And this was almost a very sacred promise because soon after he had his heart attack and it was in the middle of the night and it was like the last thing that he said. So I have lived my life trying to take care. <laughs> and I think the next incident again that has deeply informed who I am, and I have often said this, that by virtue of our family belonging to Lahore, there was a certain orientation in our family that there wasn't gender discrimination at all. I'm not talking about just for me, for two generations before me. So my grandfather had grown up with sisters who were pretty much equal. So it was a very huge privilege to belong to that family. So at the time of the last, uh, you know, when you take the person the pall bearing, it was obviously a very poignant moment. And my grandmother, who actually outlived my dad by 17 years and is a deep influence on me, was there. And she called out in Punjabi at that moment, although she's a person who's very mindful of social opinion and everything, we took a stance and said, Bhagna tu can you be a pall bearer? Mm. Because you are the elder son. For a woman of her generation in that moment and those times, it was, a, you know, it overwhelms me. I've narrated this so many times, but every time it overwhelms me. For her to take that stance in front of so many other people and say, this is what I believe in, was, was, was truly a gift it was truly breaking certain stereotypes. Mm. And I remember feeling very honored and feeling very validated. It was only many years later that I realized that although that particular thing gave me a lot, it mm. also took away a lot from me. So it took away my right to be a woman. It took away my right to be a daughter. And everything that that might mean. 
because I was the elder son. And that has definitely been a very important thing. Mm. Can I tell you a fourth thing, which I have realized only now? Or do you want only three? No, no, please go on. You know, the fact that I had to, you know, not just get my dad's certificate, but answer this question multiple number of times. So how old was he? And every time I answered 54, the number 54 became a symbol of multiple things for me. Mm. And one of the things that I, I somehow made meaning was that, who knows, maybe I will also live only up to 54. Or, you know, may not. And to a very large extent, the fear of the fact that I might not live beyond 54 led me to caregiver sati. In the sense that I just felt like I'm running out of time. I think it just added to my restlessness that I'm running out of time. If I have to do something, I must do it sooner than later and so on and so forth. I think just to catch up with all that you have said, one of the things you're talking about impressions or experiences that have left to be defining for you is uh, the identity of the uh, the eldest child and therefore being more responsible and being responsible for the younger one, not a daughter, but a son and somebody who's going to be providing and protecting the family. And then of course, the other fourth piece that you talk about being somebody who for whom time and resource is limited in some ways. How has this really shaped your journey in life thereafter? For example, have you found it, and especially when you're talking about, you know, being considered a son, you say that in a culture that we've come from and we perhaps continue to live, it's almost like an honor, but you've, you know, it's taken a price as well. Can you share a little bit more about that? What have been the some of the prices that you have paid by being the responsible child? somebody who has taken on the responsibility of being the protector and the provider for the family and somebody who's therefore psychologically been told that you you are not the daughter, that you're the son. Can you share a little bit about that? So, you know, my brother and I did the last rites. This is almost 22 years ago. And it was definitely very difficult for, I, I think it was a lot harder for my brother. But there was a very different kind of pressure on him because he was the son. So he was just supposed to do it. Sons are supposed to step up whether or not he wants to. And um, I was not supposed to step up. Right. But you know, that's the thing about the patriarchal system that puts the elder son in a certain place. And I didn't have the time to grieve. Mm. I didn't have the time to think for myself. Because although as per the ritual, so there is a ritual in which the son is supposed to take on, right? That ritual was done with my brother, but he was very uncomfortable. And I took the psychological responsibility, but I, you know, it was not really my place to do it. But what happens with an elder son is there is no space for emotional expression because you have to be there for others. You're the responsible one. You're the stoic one. You're the one in charge, which is the whole control thing. And uh, actually, you can't even... I went and had a shower after the rituals, and that was the only time that I cried. It took me a very long time to acknowledge and honor 
my sense of loss and grief and say that, you know, I lost a father when I was 25 and he was very, very important to me. I think I lost the right to be an emotional person. I lost the right to even express affection. It's easier to express a sense of responsibility. It's easier to be in a role, but accepting vulnerability, affection, taking somebody's affection became hard because I have to be there for others, right? And I must be all put together and I must know the answers to whatever I do. I may or may not know. So I have to figure it out. How has this impacted your relationships in your primary system or in your workplace? So, you know, if I were to use the identity and some of the work that we do in Sumedha's, I think a big part of my psychological identity is that of being an orphan, of being a resource unto myself, of feeling that I have to figure this way out. Although that was not necessarily true. I have a fairly involved, present second parent, my mother. And for her, if you were to ask her, she would say that I tried to double up and I was present or making up for the lack of the father. So I was a mother and the father. That might be true for her reality. But as far as I was concerned, I was the support system for everyone. And I think that being the support system for everyone or being the responsible one then allows you to focus on some parts of your personality only. So my role orientation is very high. I kind of look at things only through roles and boundaries. And uh, what that does is, in terms of all relationships, whether at work or personal relationships, very hard for me to have personal intimate relationships. It's very hard for me to belong to a system. Okay. So... I don't like to be called a label. So, for example, I wouldn't even like you, you belong to institutions and then you are called by that institution. Hmm. I wouldn't necessarily call myself by that. This piece, I, I find it a little difficult to understand. So I'm going to ask you for help to uh, help me understand. So what I understand, for example, as a child who was entrusted the role of being the protector, being the provider, not only in the sense of physically, but psychologically as well. In some ways, you're saying that the role and the duty became very important and became almost principally defining of you. So therefore, in any system, be it at home or be it in a workplace, you're pulled towards understanding the system, understanding your role, and then completely getting absorbed by that. That pull is much higher than giving way to your emotional needs. And therefore, if membership in that system, if in a family or in a workplace, if there are things that make you uncomfortable, unhappy, or even things that make you happy, etc., the expression of emotions and being led by emotions is something that has been far more of a struggle for you. And this is this is the link that you're you're making. Is that correct? Have I understood it correctly? Very well, sir. And as you were speaking, I was also reminded that one of the other prices that I've had to pay is with my expression of my femininity, mm. my womanhood, that just didn't have the space because, you know, 
vulnerability or dependence, not being able to figure out resources or not being able to find their way, et cetera, et cetera, is just not allowed, right? So it's just not an option. And then I think then those are not healthy relationships because in a healthy interdependent relationship, there are sometimes that you are dependent and sometimes the other person is dependent. And it's a it's a dance of that kind. But mm-hmm. if I'm going to take the position of no, I mean, you can only be dependent on me and I will be independent, then obviously the quality of that relationship is not a very nice relationship, right? So I think that that would have happened as well. That, you know, it really triggers a number of questions for me. Number one, is it that traditionally the responsibility, the privilege and the powers of being the pallbearer, being the provider, protector, therefore being given control, all of this has fallen upon men or been it's been reserved for men. Let's put it that way. But what I'm hearing you say is that there is a certain masculinization that uh, the daughter, in order to be empowered and not to be discriminated against, it almost sounds like the same responsibilities in the same way that the boy is being socialized. Now girls are also being socialized. And all the so-called feminine, the woman attributes of being emotional, of being nurturing, of not being very necessarily very purposive, but more expression, uh, all of those things which were stereotyped for women and girls and daughters have also been sort of uh, taken away from women in the process. Do you see this as a very lone experience for yourself? Or do you see this as a a common experience amongst a lot of women of our generation? I think it's a very common experience among many women in in our generation for the simple reason that um, a successful woman is one who has accomplished something in the marketplace. Only if you are a career woman are you an accomplished woman. Woman empowerment doesn't mean that you have an agency in whatever that you do. Woman empowerment means that you have professions of a certain kind. If you can climb the corporate ladder, if you can be ambitious, assertive in a certain way, then you have a certain acknowledgement and recognition. And at the same time, I also think, so I used to laugh about this a lot, that the men in our home were actually far more feminine than the Mm. women. And women tended to be far more masculine. But, you know, it's a good thing because at least there was some semblance of balance. But Mm. then it was really hard for the men as well. Interestingly, Mm. today is my grandfather's birthday. And uh, I was talking about him to my mom this morning. And he was not the traditional patriarch. Mm -hmm. He was this person who was happy to be in the background. He was the second son. So he was happy to give the credit to the elder son. He was not the decision-making, the in-charge control man of the house. But then he was seen as a weak man. By whom? By the rest of the family. Mm. He was loved, but not necessarily respected. Because the man of the house is supposed to be in a certain way, which is a very masculine way. Mm. So I think it impacts men as well. So not only, yes, definitely it impacts women and it impacts women of this generation. But all those men who might not subscribe to the traditional expectation would also find it quite a struggle. Tell me a little bit about when you're saying that this is a very common experience of 
women of our generation or even younger saying that, well, this was a first generation of women whose parents did not wish to maintain and perpetuate the social boundaries between the uh, son and the daughter. So their investment in their education, their investment in the career, their the choices of career of demanding jobs being legitimized and being supported by their parents, being endorsed by the parents. And then you're saying, so therefore, their corporate jobs were to be seen markers of empowerment than, let's say, for example, uh, roles as uh, homemakers or jobs which are not necessarily very high paying or high power and high authority, et cetera, et cetera. How has this impacted the idea around women's empowerment and women's leadership in the corporate space? Quite a few things there. I think uh, just a simple thing in how women empowerment is seen. For example, as opposed to it being seen as an issue of gender equity, of saying that a different set of traits and competencies and experiences Mm. deserve equal space, it is seen as an act of empowering women. I think that is the first point. Maybe there is no case for empowering women. Maybe it's just a case of listening to their voice and letting them do their thing. So there was a news item which said that if only women were to define their goals like this, they could be better leaders. I think that is saying that only a type of a leader is okay. What about let women lead the way that they lead? Maybe women will lead in a far more cooperative, collaborative circle kind of a leadership and not necessarily a hierarchical leadership. So you don't necessarily have to do some things to them and say they have to become more assertive and they have to have this quality and that quality. Maybe we just have to give them the space for them to value the qualities and the experience that they actually have. So we are seeing that now all girls should learn how to play the contact sport. And there is no space for your experience of doing the ghar ghar or the play with the dolls or whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas that's also an equally valid learning space or a play space or a whatever. And that experience and there are, they could be a very different kind of leadership that can emerge from there. I personally fought the idea of being seen as a softie for two, three reasons. I didn't want to be stereotyped as a woman manager or woman leader so that, you know, women are... How do we make a case for diversity in organizations? A large number of times people will say we need more women because women are more nurturing and women are more emotionally sensitive and women bring a certain quality of certain traits etc right Mm -hmm. however when women are hired even at the time of hiring and then subsequently promotions and opportunities that are given to them are given to certain other competencies you want Mm -hmm. to hire them for something but you want to recognize and move them up for something else like for example for being assertive for being able to keep the team together Mm -hmm. for being able to be competitive Right. So if you can do that, then you can uh, succeed. So, for example, if I had to be successful in my corporate career, I definitely had to subdue my womanness and be one of the boys. And I was very conscious and aware of it. And uh, the second thing is that I was in the HR function. 
So again, another stereotype on top of that that you know HR function is supposed to be people who care for people and they don't necessarily are hard nosed and business minded. So it was an unarticulated burden of pressure that I had to carry on both those counts to prove mm. that I am equivalent to any of my colleagues, both as a woman and second as an HR professional. Because in the years, I mean, even today. HR challenges are being the strategic partner, having a seat at the table, and so on and so forth, which you are given access to only if you meet a set of criteria, which are all very masculine. Mm. So uh, all of these demands are being, you're saying, are being made externally. Externally over here would be the leadership of various organizations are setting a culture where these demands are being made upon women who are joining the workforce. If I were to ask you, so you have a large population of women who have benefited from the best of education, equal opportunities in education, and of course, I'm not talking about a huge number. This is only a very, very tiny proportion of a country, perhaps, but definitely a recognizable cadre from all the business schools, and they have joined this corporate workforce. But you're also saying, by your through your own experience and experience of others like you. that even in that socialization empowerment has meant taking on the psychological roles and the social roles of what was until that point of time ascribed or reserved for boys and men yeah in your personal experience you're saying therefore the girl the daughter the sister psychologically was to be set aside and these were inner meanings that was that were made very very unconsciously both by you as an individual and by the families and you're saying this is not a very not a very exclusive experience this is something that a lot of other women you've worked with have gone through similar experiences so by that logic there is a certain women like you have therefore gotten into organizations which are male dominated uh, the leadership is largely male and therefore the metrics of success or metrics of competence are largely masculine right or let's say as ashok balhotra would say patricentric that they are they defined by a male lens have the women women's leadership as they have entered organizations have they's grown in seniority and the ranks have they challenged it or have they colluded with it not a straight answer right but i think colluded to a large extent very few are beginning to challenge it but you see that what has happened therefore is that there are very some deep rooted ideas already mm. about what's okay and what's not okay in one of the women's group that i'm a part of there was some reference to saying you know cooking food at home really i'm not one who would just do that as if cooking food in the house was a lesser important task it isn't it is a very important task in the house and how well the food is cooked will determine the health and the nourishment of the family and they do say that actually it one of the outcomes of the feminist movement was pushing the cooking out of the house to say that women don't have to just cook and that has deeply affected us in terms of how we see taking care of ourselves how we see the role of cooking and um i think that women have wanted to play the game i had just started my career mm. and i was gifted a book 
at the start of your career read this book the book was called hardball for men if you want to be successful play the game like men do so be seen in black and blue suits and be seen like this speak like this don't bring emotions so on and so forth Mm-hmm. Now if I have to win this game I have to play the game by the rules that are set in this game and I cannot change the system from the outside I have to be a part of the system to change mm-hmm. it So to your question I think colluding with the system may have been required may have been useful it is good till so far mm-hmm. but I think there is a quality of awareness required now to be able to say that colluding helped us thus far but now it is time for us to define different rules so mm. now if we can recognize that we colluded only for the effort of being in these positions now we need to challenge then we are okay and is there a women's leadership or the voice from the women's leadership do you hear them actually going down that road because then you're saying it's a very conscious decision to collude up till a point and then to challenge my question to you is was it really conscious or was it an unconscious collusion i can't say for sure but i don't think it could have been conscious i don't think it was that oh for the first 30 years we will collude with the system become a part of the system after 30 years we will tell all the women that when you become a part of this this is your job i don't think that's how women are groomed right mm-hmm. but i do think that maybe it is time for us to sit back and honor and acknowledge that okay there are a set of women that had to fight the fight to get voting rights there are a set of women that had to fight for being just able to go out and work and they did all kinds of things to be allowed that but our context and our circumstances are now different and we are in different positions so now we have the opportunity to recognize that by continuing this game we are con- colluding and now is an opportunity for us to bring in something else can we listen to the other women who might not be like us can we listen to women who have home building nurturing experience but not subject them to relevant work experience can we tell women that it's okay for you to form collectives and cooperatives and collaborative setups as much as it is hierarchical setups because both are required in different contexts and one is not better than the other so mm-hmm. now that the women are there if they can have slightly less misogyny and pull up all kinds of other women that would be cool tell me something how does it link up to caregiver sathi because you know i'll tell you from where i see it So what I understand about your journey as caregiver sathi is that you've been raising the issue of the the value of the role of the caregiver the value of the identity of the caregiver and in every family there is some kind of caregiving caregiving is not only for the sick and the ailing it is caregiving for children caregiving for anybody and everybody and even cooking is a form of caregiving in a sense and these are things which are largely unpaid and therefore they cannot be salaried and there there are no promotions and there and we've heard largely women often saying this that uh, we don't have holidays and we don't you know once a cook always a cook and and things like that and therefore raising something as quintessential as that is then not necessarily looking at empowerment or discrimination from the point of biological sex or gender 
It is looking at discrimination and the issues of equity and equality from a labor point of view. This is how I see it, which is why I find it very exciting. But tell us something more about that. Absolutely. I think it is not a women and men issue only. As the elder son, I care deeply or I care deeply for my family. A provider and a patriarch also cares. Caregiving per se is a different issue, right? Now, even in an organization, the fact that a secretary provides the administrative setup, the logistics, sets up the calls, provides the infrastructure, blah, 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 can often be overlooked because that is the system, the infrastructure that has been provided. And care and emotional infrastructure is absolutely essential for any system to thrive whether it is a work system or it is a home system or it is an individual system as well. So caregiver sati is about dignifying the role of caregivers and valuing the emotional labor that goes into the work. There is a physical labor and there is an intellectual labor in doing something, but providing care is much more than that. There is there are very interesting studies in medical science about the placebo effect that say that a healer or a doctor could have different impact even with sugar pills because of the manner in which the person approaches the patient or the confidence that the patient has on the doctor that this person will do the right thing for me or take care of me. That element of trust, that, that exchange of energy is required in any caregiving setup. And we, are, we don't have the wherewithal to recognize it and to value it to some extent. Because everything is measured in money and because everything must be converted into a number and therefore have a money value to it, the unpaid care-related work has come to the bottom, right? In the hierarchy in, of dignity. In the hierarchy of dignity. Because if money, how much money you earn, then that labor which can get monetized will bubble up, right? So I can monetize, I did 10 hours of work. I can monetize, uh, I produced this piece of writing, I did this piece of art, I did this IP, blah, blah, blah. So we have a way of monetizing physical and intellectual labor. But we just don't have the way of monetizing emotional labor. But you and I both go to restaurants and hotels and we want a certain quality of service. We are also willing to pay differentially for a certain quality of service. But we also know that that emotional labor is expected of the person can sometimes be at the cost of the person. That waiter may have just had a very horrible day, but will need to present himself in a certain way because that's the job. And that emotional labor which caregivers provide is not yet on our radar. And a large number of people argue that you cannot convert it. That, you know, how can you value a mother's love? It is infinite. The problem with that is that that emotional labor or that emotional investment or whatever that is, if it is put on a pedestal, you run a risk of dehumanizing it. You make it so noble that you forget that this person also needs to have independence. 
in our system we are giving agency and decision making to that person who brings in the most money whether it is the sales in an organization or it is the man of the house who earns the living the line of questioning and some of these questions that you are asking are very very new even in the feminist discourses because it challenges some of the basic things for example how do we value something and if it is not through money then what else how do we ensure for example somebody could be very revered as a being a wonderful mother and a wonderful wife and a wonderful daughter in law for all their lives and then there is a divorce either because the husband has outgrown the woman and has found a more intellectually compatible partner or compatible in whatever way and she in her midlife is bereft of all resources and living off paltry uh, sums of money which is almost given to her as a as charity as welfare almost like you know she has to feel guilty for it and i think it is a very very valid question i think this has been such a delightful conversation bhavna my last closing comments from you in your trajectory of life the eldest daughter the psychological son the pole bearer the family protector and the provider in all of this uh, if you go back in time to the 16 year old bhavna what is it that you would tell her you know i would tell the 16 year old myself that go after your dream more than your responsibility and because i know you are such a there's a lovely poet in you there's a lovely writer in you there's a lovely singer in you i'd uh, would you please recite or read or something for the 16 year old i got i had written a few lines i just wish i had access to it right now um so it was jo tu beej hai aur teri kismat hai khilna to kyun simte rehna hawaon se ladna ubharna aur nikharna what that means is that if you are a seed of potential and hope then why stay constrained why be afraid of emerging face the winds come out of your shell after all your destiny is to blossom beautiful and it's never too late to blossom it's never too late to blossom can i say something as a closing remark sure you know i always thought that i grew up in this tension that uh, you know my mother was more masculine than my father and my father was more feminine and in the spirit of the seed analogy a very popular couplet my mother used to always say khudi ko kar buland itna ki har tadbir se pehle khuda bande se puche bata teri raza kya hai alama ikbal has written this and this is about you know make yourself so significant and be able to so that even god has to seek your advice and my father used to say another couplet which was mita de apni hasti gar tu martaba chahe kedana khak mein milkar gule gulzar hota what it means is you have to let go of your identity if you want to attain something because a seed has to let go being a seed if it wishes to be a flower I have to let go being the elder son if I have to become whoever I have to become. That was beautiful. Thank you, and good luck to your emerging Bhavna. I mean, I, I look forward to seeing you. Maybe we'll have a conversation, maybe a couple of years later, three years later, and see you know what what the seed has now blossomed into. I look forward. 
Thank you so much, Bhavna. Super. I like I said that I always leave every conversation I have with you with a very warm and um, certain warmth I can't explain, but feeling very tender with it, um, and that's caregiving to me. So thank you for caring. Thank you. Bhavna's narrative triggers several interesting thoughts and questions for me, and I'm sure for many of you. A leadership journey can be so lonesome. but it also has the potential of being a journey where a person finds resonance with others of desires and dreams in conviction and determination and bhavna's experiences are a dynamic testimony to that the other nugget in this conversation that's highlight is about what happens to girls and women who receive the gift and honor of being seen as a beta or the son of the family our society particularly the middle and the upper middle classes with nuclear families with one or two children have progressed to a point where parents do not discriminate between sons and daughters do not restrict girls in their education or careers bhavna's grandmother's offering to her of being the son and heir was certainly meant to be a gift but bhavna's experience and insight that this message may have also led her to condition her choices suppress parts of herself that did not fit the demands of such a mantle i wonder is this only bhavna's experience or is it more common than we think in order to break and challenge patriarchal restrictions do girls and women have to masculinize themselves to qualify themselves as equal to boys and men if sons are symbols of an heir the provider the responsible one who takes care of the family what is being said of daughters These are not easy questions and instead of getting caught with finding the right answer i believe these require more reflection and sharing of our experiences from life that exploration may offer us insights and answers to many of our questions and that is our call to grow